0: Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, KUNM News Director Megan Kamrick. A recent series by KFF Health News and The New York Times found that roughly 10,000 baby boomers will turn 65 every day until 2030. Most expect to live into their 80s and 90s. This increased longevity comes as the price tag for long-term care explodes, outpacing inflation and reaching a half trillion dollars a year, according to federal researchers. Our country has no comprehensive system of long-term care, unlike many other industrialized countries, and it's getting more difficult and expensive to buy long-term care insurance. The elder care sector of home health, assisted living and nursing homes is plagued by labor shortages and spots in assisted living facilities have become unaffordable for most people. This morning on Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll speak with one of the reporters who published this series and we'll hear from state officials, advocates and someone who had to navigate these systems with family members. Are you worried about your future when you'll need more care? Are you a caregiver or trying to navigate all this for aging parents or other relatives? What challenges are you facing and what information do you need? And what policies do you think we need to ensure we're caring for our elders with dignity? Email Talk at kunm.org or call 505-277-5866. My first guest is a former colleague of mine, Kevin Robinson Avila. Kevin has navigated finding care for his mother and then for his brother. Both of them have since passed. But, Kevin, can you give us a quick overview of how this process worked with your mother?
1: Sure. Um, my mom was a school teacher and retired. Um, in her 50s, she got um, uh, multiple sclerosis. And had a fairly decent pension and um, Social Security, obviously. and was a, She was in a wheelchair, but able first to live independently for quite a while and then went to assisted living. And her um, pension and Social Security were just about enough to get by in assisted living. The assisted living facility had to go through a couple of them before we got one that really satisfied her needs and paid attention to her needs. Uh, And that was good for a while, but then her health declined when she was in her 70s and we had to move her to a nursing home to do it. My mom had to give up. She was right in that middle place where making too much to qualify for Medicaid, but nowhere near between the pension and and Social Security to pay for a nursing home on her own. So I had to hire a lawyer and uh, go through the process of giving up any assets. She didn't really have any financial assets but things like life insurance that she had bought I uh, had to give all these things up turn over her salary that is her pension and Social Security to the government to qualify for Medicaid which would allow then her to be get into a nursing home and in short we didn't have a whole lot of problem financially speaking once she was able to get onto the Medicaid program problem was we went from one nursing home to another in Albuquerque. We'd look around for the best place, we places that had the best reputation to get her into. Um, and those were the private facilities, local privately run facilities. We'd get her into a place that was good for maybe six months, eight months. And then all of a sudden we would get bought out by a national corporation. They were buying them across the board. This is going back about 10, 15 years ago. And then the care would go downhill plummeting, horrible, have to get her out of there and transfer to another one and the exact same process happened three different times. And in some of the places just real nightmare situations. So we finally got her into a local privately run um, nursing facility that stayed in private hands during the time that she was there until she passed away. Um, That's what we did with my mom. The real bad experience we had was the nursing homes themselves, once they get bought out by these big multinational corporations, the care goes plummeting downhill.
0: What kind of issues did you encounter when that happened?
1: Well, I'll give one example. I won't name names of the nursing facilities, but um, she was in one that had an excellent reputation. That's why we put her there, moving her out of one. this situation had just happened and went downhill we put her in there she was really well cared for there were lots of staff always there to take care she she roomed with two other women in that facility always did but the care was always there people attentive nurses attentive when she needed something they would be there take good care of her in terms of the medication she had a lot of medication she had to take and then once the ownership changed hands. I don't know how many of the nurses left, I don't have the numbers, but I can tell you there were a fraction of the staff that was there previously, uh, were no longer there. That is a fraction remained. And so she sit around for hours trying to get care of things that she needed help with she's in a wheelchair confined full time. Um, They got constantly got her medications wrong in some cases at, at some pretty serious medications, in some cases, created serious health problems for her. Um, At one point, the only way she could get around, she was in an electric wheelchair. She would go down the hallway and they decided she's going too fast and being a danger to everybody. They just decided the best way to deal with that, easier for them, take a wheelchair away and left her lying in her bed, basically bedridden for a a number of days until finally she got a hold of me and I went in there screaming until they gave her a wheelchair back. I'm just giving you a couple simple examples. There are much more serious things, but the entire care process uh, was just, it just became a disaster. She couldn't get anything. We got her out of there into another one, same process until we finally got into the final nursing home. Which was a uh, nonprofit,
0: I might add, right? A private, correct. No, mm-hmm.
1: That's correct. Um, I, the, the big takeaway I have is the multinational companies uh rather national level and multinational uh, corporations that have been buying up these healthcare facilities across the board it's all about squeezing the most profit horrendous experience with my brother who actually died in their care and we sued the the the, the uh corporation. but that is the biggest uh, and most difficult situation that i had to deal with how little care they provide once these big for-profit corporations take over.
0: Yes, your brother, uh, he had uh, early onset dementia. And um, tell us a little bit, you had him in one facility, but he did indeed die. What happened?
1: In short, and I, I will name this corporation, it's Genesis Healthcare. They are one of the, if not the largest healthcare corporations in the US, and they're multinational. They're one of the ones that have been buying up these healthcare facilities, nursing homes across the board. They own many in Albuquerque and throughout New Mexico. We did not know when, well, my brother's Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's came on very fast. He was only uh, 61 when it began, or 60 when it began. He died, it uh, wasn't even 63, just before he turned 63. And we scrambled to do the same process, like with my mother, to give up any income of any kind that he had. In his case, he had two sons, my nephews. We took them in. I became his legal guardian, went through the whole process, got him onto Medicaid, got him into a facility. And the facility we got him into, at the time, it, there wasn't any other place available. We didn't know much about it. But we had to get him in someplace. We got him in there. And he needed very special care. He was in an advanced stage. By the time he was six months in, in advanced stage of Alzheimer's, he went very rapidly downhill. He needed to be watched and cared for on a regular basis. He would roam. And so- uh, He would roam around. He would never mm-hmm. roam around. And he would never go through a closed door setting. So the certain doors like to the cafeteria between meals needed to be closed just to give an example. Um, because he would wander in there and who knows what he would do. Uh, they couldn't just have him roaming and but they never closed the doors and never watched him let him roam He'd go in any place. And, and no matter what happened, there just wasn't the care then uh, or enough people even if they wanted to to take care of him that way. The only way he could eat is if somebody was there with him supervising his his eating. In any case, what happened in the end was after Quite a while of this same situation, they knew very well the care he needed. They left the cafeteria cafeteria doors open after lunch, didn't clean up the lunch tables. They had had hot dogs that day; all the tables just thorough mess. Nobody went in, cleaned up. Cafeteria doors open, nurses paying no attention. He's wandering around, and doors are open. He wanders into the cafeteria, stuffs the hot dog while nobody's looking. In his mouth, starts choking on it raced to the nursing station where they did CPR, could not save him and he died there. Um, I will say uh, what made it such an outrageous case, there was video at the nursing station of the incident as it happened. They erased it, they did not save it. And they erased the video that was of the cafeteria as well tried to argue that the tables were clear, the doors were closed. They could not prove that, which obviously was not the case. He would never go through closed doors. But that's because they erased the video and then said, well, we have no idea. We erased it. We won that case. And it was the that particular corporation has been sued any number of times by the federal government I suppose, by state governments. I can't remember now um, for very significant damages over the years in different facilities that they run they have many, many times faced lawsuits by uh, individuals, families, and never once has one of those lawsuits actually gone to trial and been won because the pressure is immense coming down on the families to reach a settlement for a pittance. We absolutely refused. And I can tell you, we did reach a significant settlement. They tried to settle with us for two to two and a half times what we got in the end And we refused it all because I didn't want to have my um, ability to freely speak about it uh, uh, stopped. So we were the first in the nation with that company as a family to be able to sue them successfully. They had no case in court. They didn't even appeal it.
0: I am so sorry, Kevin. It's an awful experience. Um, And... um... I have put the, uh, when you were, this is when you were working at the Albuquerque Journal, your colleague then, Colleen Hild, an investigative reporter, did a story about this, and it is on the page for the show at KUNM.org. Um, and it sounds like financial-wise, you did these things that you had to do, but you and your wife and your family were not, they did not come after your assets to say, well, for him to go on Medicaid, for your mom to go on Medicaid, you got to. You know you can't have any of those and we're going to get any of those assets either so
1: they, they did not and that's basically because we didn't have any assets i'm not talking now about my wife and myself um we have a home we have certain assets but my mother didn't have any assets beyond her income and the extra things like the life insurance that i said that she took out my brother because of the dementia within a year or two prior to getting to the point where we had to put him in a nursing home was not capable of taking care of his finances and it took us a while to realize what was going on with him and to step in by the time we did he had already tallied up an immense amount of debt there weren't any assets to get and in that sense for us the ability to get in each different one my mom and my brother onto the medicaid was a good thing it's but that's us. We were very lucky. I have many friends with elderly parents who have had a very different situation, but in our case there were no assets to come after.
0: Um we are going to uh thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate you oh. coming on and sharing the story. Um Kevin is a dogged reporter, and um, he put those skills to use, as you can hear him talking about how much he researched this company. Um, We have to go to a quick break. We're going to come back after the break with Jordan Rao, the reporter from KFF Health News, who did the series Dying Broke, which you can find on our website, KUNM.org. This is Let's Talk New Mexico in 89.9 KUNM. We're talking about long-term care, and we want to hear from you. You can call 505-277-5866. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick, and we are talking about the many challenges in finding affordable long-term care. You can see the full series on this, Dying Broke, uh, from KFF Health News and The New York Times at our website, KUNM.org. Are you trying to find long-term care for yourself or a loved one? What challenges are you facing? You can give us a call at 505-277-5866 or email talk at kunm.org. My next guest this morning is journalist Jordan Rao. He is with KFF Health News and worked on this series, Dying Broke, with Reed Abelson at the New York Times. Jordan, you interviewed many people around the country struggling to find affordable care for their loved ones, their spouses, their parents. How does Kevin Robinson Avila's experience with his family members align with those of the folks you spoke with?
2: Uh, Hi, Megan. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And, you know, I was listening to Kevin's story. I have heard, unfortunately, so many stories that are so similar, uh, and I've read, you know, lawsuits and uh, uh, investigative reports by the state agencies about uh, the nursing homes. And um, it's unfortunately, frankly, it's it's actually gotten worse since the pandemic before uh, that. But I do want to give Kevin uh, immense uh, props for, uh, for standing firm on not signing a uh, uh, non-disparagement clause, because that's one of the problems in getting a lot of this information out is most people are pressured to do it. But um, the trajectory that Kevin described of um, going from being able to be at home to needing some help at home, to needing so much help that you need to be in assisted living, and then um, to basically exhausting your assets because those places are overwhelmingly private pay. The government doesn't mostly doesn't pay for that unless you're very, very poor and even then. And then ending up in a nursing home that is understaffed, um, is not centered around the patient, they're very, most of them are very industrial in the way that they work because they're under a lot of financial pressure. That's very, very common. Uh, And that's sort of why we did our series was to look at these people who are in the middle, and they don't start out, you know, being indigent, but by the by the end of their lives, they are.
0: What kind of costs do people face for long term care? I mean, I know it varies by region, but nursing homes, assisted living, home health, I mean, some of the numbers I saw in your story were $60,000 Sixty thousand a year, hundred thousand a year.
2: Oh, yeah, so um, so to take assisted living, um, you know, you, the median is you know four or five thousand, but that's month, sort of right? a month. Thank yeah. you, mm-hmm. but that's that's just to basically be in there for the rent, and it can easily top ten thousand or fifteen thousand if you need uh, to be in a dementia care unit or you need um, a lot of assistance, um, and so you know you can add that up if you're paying ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars a month. You know, who can afford that? And um, when people go into a nursing home, if they haven't already qualified for Medicaid, um, the nursing homes will, you know, easily, you know, be start at 10,000 and be higher. So, you know, these amounts are so large that they do drain all of people's assets in a very quick time. And, you know, then people are left with a choice about, you know, maybe their family members will start paying for some of it, uh, which often happens, or they will, you know, have to leave an assisted living facility and go into a nursing home because that's the only place where they get state support.
0: And what are the factors that are creating this kind of perfect storm in terms of demographics, healthcare systems, and federal policies or lack of federal policies?
2: Well, there's the uh, the demographic uh, factor, which is just you know people are living longer, um, and there's more of them. Um, you know, as you talked about at the beginning of the show, and that's just gonna the baby boom retirement is just gonna flood the demand for these places. Um, And then there's the systemic factors, which is in America, um, we don't really have a long-term care organized system. Uh, You know, in our series, we called it a patchwork. And so what you have is, you know, some people can take out um, long-term care private insurance, but it's very expensive and even then doesn't always cover everything. Um, America isn't like, you know, the Netherlands that have mandatory insurance, uh, the compulsory that everyone has to buy, or government systems. And so it's actually you get a lot more support financially if you're, say, going into a hospital um, and you're on Medicare than you do if you need uh, this type of long-term care. And what we're talking about is not primarily um, medical care, although there is some of that. But we're talking about assistance in your daily tasks of living, you know, going to the bathroom, eating and such. Or, um, you know, because you have dementia, you need to be watched, you know, like um, Kevin's family was. And uh, but but the United States doesn't have that. So we've got a safety net that is underfunded and overburdened. That's the nursing homes. And then everything above that, you're sort of on your own.
0: Hmm. Um, Some people assume that Medicare will cover long term care. That's not necessarily true. Right.
2: That's right. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Uh, We as part of this project, we had a poll that showed just the extent of that. And in certain circumstances, it will cover it. But the vast majority of people that we're talking about, it doesn't cover it. Um, If you go into a nursing home, for instance, for uh, short-term rehabilitation, you know, you've got a knee replacement, that's covered by Medicare. But if you're a long-stay patient, you know, someone that's just got to be in there again, you know, for, you know, just because you can't live alone, that isn't covered by Medicare.
0: What do people have to do to qualify for Medicaid when Medicare isn't available or benefits run out? I mean, it, it sounds like they have to impoverish themselves.
2: It goes, it's very, essentially, yes, it goes from state to state. It's, they're very different and the rules are, you know, like Kevin's family, is sort of bonkers that you have to hire a private lawyer to figure out how to impoverish yourself. Right. Um, but, but, you know, just a, you know, broadly sort of 30,000 foot view, you know, you have to be earning less than, you know, like $3,000, um, a, a year. And you have to be, um, you know, basically have no assets, except for maybe your primary house. And even there, you know, you end up losing that. I, one of the people that we featured in the story was a woman who was in Kansas, a uh, daughter, she came home to take care of her mother who was in a nursing home. And um, the state, the way that it works there is you can keep your primary home, but after you die, uh, the state will come and claim the cost of your care while you're alive from the home. So she ended up having to sort of oversee her mother's care in the nursing home. And at the same time, she was trying to sell off the house and her mother was ping-ponging off Medicaid and on Medicaid. And, you know, that's one of the problems with this system is just, you know, it's emotionally hard enough for families to take care of their relatives. Um, And then when you add in the financial elements and just the bureaucratic and logistical elements, it's just so much. Um, and, And, of course, we're not even talking about you know, people that don't have family that are taking care of mm.
0: them. You you referred to one of I can't remember what state. Maybe it was Kansas. But you called the Medicaid rules Byzantine.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was Kansas. That was this example.
0: Okay, um, I think you were also reported only eighteen percent of facilities take Medicaid. Is that right?
2: Yes. Um, so Medicaid. Uh, so assisted living facilities are regulated by the states. Uh, they are not, in general, paid for. By, um, by government. Um, the exception is that if you are so poor that you're on Medicaid, some facilities will uh, take Medicaid money, but even there only to cover the medical sort of staffing portions of you, not the rent. So it's just um, the whole, it's all privatized in that way. And that's why it's so uh, financially difficult is, you know, if you have the right type of long-term care insurance, which most people don't, that will pay for it, but otherwise you've got to pay out of pocket.
0: Um, the costs of long-term care have skyrocketed. I just want to ask our listeners, have you had problems finding affordable he- home health or long-term care? We want to hear from you. Call 505-277-5866 or email Talk at kunm.org. Uh, Jordan Rao, you also wrote that efforts to create a national long-term care system, you mentioned the Netherlands and other countries also have these, these have repeatedly collapsed. Why is this so hard?
2: Um, there's a well. There's a bunch of reasons. Um, there's you know the political reasons, which is it's not on the forefront of things that are lawmakers being pressured, and then there's uh, the reality that um, to, to have a an insurance system like for long term care or really any, you have to have everyone in the pool, right? It's like auto insurance. It doesn't work if it's if car insurance wouldn't work if only if you got to choose whether to have it because the only people that would have it would be the people that were smashing up their cars all the time. Um, and then they would, you know, all the costs would skyrocket. So um, when the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was uh, being created and passed, it had uh, about a decade ago. It had a provision for a voluntary uh, long-term care insurance uh, program for the nation, and um, the uh, the Congress ended up removing that before it even took effect because it was just it was just not going to be financially stable. So since then, no one's wanted to touch it in Congress. A couple of states are either doing something or have looked at it. Um, The state that's sort of in the vanguard is Washington state. They put in a a small um, payroll tax and that will pay for long-term care um, insurance. But the cap of it is, uh, I think, is $36,000. That's the most that you get paid out. And if you look at the numbers that we were just talking about, that's going to run out pretty quickly. You know, particularly if you're, right, I mean, the average stay in long-term care is about two years. But if you're a dementia patient or if you have, you know, those, you can end up needing assistance for so much longer. You know, if there are people five years, six years, ten years, and that's not going to come close to paying for it.
0: Yes, I have to say um, my mother-in-law is, uh, has been in a nursing home for some years with Alzheimer's um, and is lasting a long time. Um At least one Republican lawmaker told you that the federal government cannot step in more and people need to just save more money. But you talk to people who had pensions, which is a rare thing these days, who had saved quite a bit for retirement and it wasn't enough. So how realistic is it that average Americans can save the amount required for long term care?
2: Well, I think that they that was the the the. The, the premise of the series was yeah. that they can't. And that's what we set out to document. And, you know, the Republicans uh, as a whole in, in Congress are not, you know, don't have an interest in, in entitlement programs anyway. Uh, you know, uh, my reporting colleague and I, Reed, uh, Reed Abelson, and I, we were struck by the Democrats' response, too, is that, that they weren't really leaping when we tried to interview them and, frankly, tried to find, you know, people that would, you know, say, well, this is, you know, a serious problem that we're going to address they weren't interested in jumping on it either because it's a you know the cost of of providing this type of care particularly given the demographics is so large that the democrats don't want to politically be adding a whole other um entitlement program that would you know rival or or accompany you know be the largest expansion since medicare and medicaid uh, were passed in the 60s
0: um You talked about staffing in your series. Kevin, you talked about staffing and the difficulties in getting your mom care. Um, I spoke with Adrienne Smith from the New Mexico Caregivers Coalition about this. Uh, She couldn't come on live, but we have um, a clip of her talking about this.
3: This issue that is not sexy until it hits home. And now it's hitting home for everyone. When our demographics changed to now be number fourth in the country, ranked percentage of people 65 and older. And then once COVID was over and it, we didn't give raises to caregivers during COVID, we're reaping what we sow when we didn't pay attention to these workers. And I don't know a single agency that's having an easy time finding workers. When we say
0: caregivers, who are we talking about?
3: Everybody knows one. But the occupational classification is called a nursing assistant, a home health aide, personal care assistant. We have in New Mexico this term we call homemaker. It's an ancient kind of pretty outdated term. If a person is a caregiver to people with developmental disabilities, they're called direct support professionals. You know, by and large, there would be about 62,000 in this state who work in that capacity in some way, supporting a person who's elderly and or someone with disability. The 62,000 I mentioned would be those who are in the workforce doing this for a job. There are another 419,000 in the state of New Mexico, according to our AARP office, that do it with or without pay.
0: Now, I know you did a listening session this past year in 2023, what were the biggest concerns that caregivers had?
3: Uh, Sadly, it makes me think we haven't really done that much because a lot of what they said in 2023 are the same issues they raised in 2009. The pay is never enough. A lot of them don't even get the employment supports that other employees receive, you know, for a variety of reasons. If they're only able to work 30 hours a week then those are the people who are having to cobble together two jobs, maybe three, just to make ends meet. There were numerous caregivers I'm thinking of, in particular in Farmington, for whatever reason, they, they mentioned it time and again, you know, this is a 24-7 hour job, but the state will only pay me for four hours a day, in, in a couple of cases, eight hours a week,
0: that was Adrian Smith with the New Mexico Caregivers Coalition. Jordan Rao, how do workforce pay and staffing shortages factor into the challenges finding good, affordable, long-term care?
2: Uh, well, so uh, before I say that, I, I neglected to say that the vast majority of care is actually unpaid care by families and relatives. And that's, you know, that's and they've sort of stepped up because of the. Um, and sacrificed a lot in also.
0: their own lives to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Huge amounts. But um, so the the uh, the workforce, there's a huge workforce shortage of nursing assistants and nurses. And um, it's a couple of things. There are a lot of people who were burned out uh, from the pandemic. It is exhausting work. Um, the pay is at the bottom of, you know, minimum wage or higher off. And it's at the bottom of the healthcare world. And you can make more money uh, in, you know, working at Target or working in the hospital, which is a probably a better professional environment to be in than you can working as an aide in a nursing home. Uh, there's often not, um, you know, a career ladder for people, uh, with, with the increase in, um, in, uh, uh, a lot of these people have been traditionally immigrants who've come to the country. And obviously that's a super third rail right now. Um, so those positions aren't being uh, replenished in the same way. So Mm. it's a, It's a brutal, brutal job. I mean, and there's Mm -hmm. some very, very dedicated people. There's some people who are very disgruntled who do it and just do it because they have to. There's enormous turnover. You know, a lot of nursing homes have staff turnover 50 percent in a year. Um, And and so you do have this this huge lack of support for these
0: jobs. When my parents were in assisted living in Florida, pretty much all the nurse care staff were immigrants. Uh, I Pretty uh, all. <laughs> um, why does this, this burden falls heavily on women. That was pretty clear in your series. From that's right. Paid yeah, to unpaid right. caregivers. Yes.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's it's been a, I uh, saw so this phrase female coded in a, in a piece in the last couple of weeks. I thought that was right. It's a female coded profession, um, although there are men in it. And then the unpaid versions, I mean, daughters and uh, uh, spouses are the most common to step up. To do this type of work, although there is an increased number of 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 uh, husbands and sons who do it, but it's um, you know it's it's uh, it is something that falls very heavily, and a lot of women have to take a uh, you know they have to step back from their professional um, aspirations, they have to uh, juggle um, and reduce their their child caring. Uh, stuff we profiled people in the series that moved, you know, from other countries, not just other states, and you know, gave up jobs to take care of their uh, parents.
0: We had a caller who couldn't stay on, stay on the line, but uh, caller Billy from Albuquerque said, as a nurse, I thought I knew how this process worked, but until my mother got into the situation, I didn't realize how bad it actually was. We were forced to impoverish her to, in order to get her coverage. And then the facility where she received care actually hastened her death. She came down with bed sores, among other problems, until the neglect finally led her going septic and passing away. Um Jordan, we're talking a lot about lack of money. There's clearly a lot of money here. Uh, otherwise, private equity and large corporations wouldn't be such big players in this. Are they basically relying on getting Medicaid funds?
2: Uh, so for uh, for nursing homes, yeah, the vast majority of money is net Medicaid funds. And there are a lot of corporations. It's an overwhelmingly, you know, the history, you know, very broadly broadshed is, A long time ago, you know, decades ago, there were a lot of county nursing homes and um, then they became um, uh, the counties shedded them and they were taken over. And now most of them are there are a lot of nonprofits, which um, uh, tend to be better than uh, the for profits, although, you know, there are certainly, um, you know, many exceptions to that rule. And uh, they do rely primarily on Medicaid. Uh, which is a very low payer, and a lot of the uh, multinationals, the uh, big publicly traded companies, have started to get out of it. And there's a whole bunch. Of, there are just groups and groups of investors that uh, you don't, you know, hear about. You don't even know that they're the ones that own the nursing home, and they'll own, you know, 40 or 50 nursing homes around the country, and they they buy them, and then they, when they get into enough regulatory trouble, um, they'll sell them to somebody else, and they they just sort of get passed around. It's very very mm. disheartening.
0: I mean, you said the profit margins or the operating margins for some of these private companies is like 25 percent. I mean, Kevin so and I the, used to be business reporters, so we know that's really high.
2: <laughs> right. So just to distinguish, that was uh, for assisted living, which, okay. is, as we said, is a totally different ballgame. And it's um, that's more private. And that's mostly private. Right. Yeah. A nursing home uh, margin is uh, is very small. Got you it. know, I mean two, 3% is pretty good. But to be uh, what what's um, sort of disturbing is that actually isn't very telling because these are very complicated corporate structures and um, the more avaricious owners, certainly not everybody, there's some fantastic privately owned nursing homes uh, that are for profit, but the avaricious ones will siphon money out of the nursing home by setting up separate companies Uh, to do the staffing and the management and actually to own the property. And so it looks on paper like the nursing home is struggling. But at the same time, these other companies are getting large amounts of money that end up being passed along as profits uh, to to the owners.
0: Uh, Kevin, I think I know this answer, but did your mother or your brother have long term care insurance?
1: Uh, No, they did not. Um. If I might, Mm -hmm. I don't want to take up more than just a few seconds, but I really want to respond to some of what Jordan was saying with the staff situation. I mean, that's one of the first things that you see when the corporation comes in, takes it away from a private nonprofit. The amount of staff just plummets and the people left behind are left with an unbelievable burden on their shoulders because there's few of them taking care of far more patients. And many of them are very dedicated people. It's a mixed bag. Some don't care, some are just doing the job, some are less um, empathetic or sympathetic. Some are very caring, but it's run like a factory. I mean, done to cut costs across the board and make it impossible to simply be able to keep tabs on a person wandering around dangerously to stuff a hot dog in his mouth. That's not a whole lot of skill, but they're just, and it's not that the nurses necessarily didn't want to pay attention, they don't have time to pay attention. They create a situation in which the staff that is there can't do their job effectively.
0: Uh, thank you, Kevin. We are going to talk more about long term care insurance. I got to just go to a break real quick. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUM. I'm Megan Camrick. We're talking about efforts um, around long term care insurance. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm sorry long-term care in general, not just insurance. Uh, You can call us at 277, that's 505-277-5866. We will be talking with several folks from state agencies who can talk about resources, uh, but we will be right back. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're talking about the challenges of finding and paying for long-term care and resources in the state. If you have a question or comment, give us a call at 505-277-5866 or email letstalk at kunm.org. Um Jordan Rao with KFF Health News. There were many exhortations years ago that we should all plan and buy long-term care insurance. But you and your colleague Reed Abelson found this is not a solution right now. <laughs> Why? Um,
2: well, but, uh, for a variety of reasons. One thing is that the um, the companies uh, that sold the product um, years ago uh, really guessed wrong or estimated wrong on how much it would actually cost to pay it out. And people lived longer. They didn't um, dump their stuff stop, uh, stop their premiums. Um, and so, uh, they, they got into a bad situation in the eighties and the nineties where they didn't have enough money for the payouts and for their profits, obviously. And so they, uh, started raising premiums and the premium hikes were huge. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes even as much as 50% uh, in a year. And so a lot of people either dropped their policies or, and new people didn't want to buy them at the same time the companies started reducing uh, the benefits. So it used to be, you know, where if it was paying for three years of nursing home care, it would now only pay for two years of nursing home care. And so it's a, just a spiral yeah. where, um, you know, similar to the problem, well, exactly the problems that we were talking about in insurance. And so it's really gotten to the point uh, where, uh, I mean, some, just to be clear, some of these policies have been, you know, godsend for, for elderly people and have allowed them to, you know, get the type of assistance that they want and they need in their elder years, and they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. But um, increasingly, you know, the the next generation, the Gen Xers and such, um, aren't buying these these policies for this reason, and so that the the market is basically in a in a close to a death spiral. Most companies don't sell these products anymore, um, and most people don't have
0: them. Uh, Jordan, there were all these stories years ago about this enormous wealth transfer that would take place as baby boomers aged. It sounds like that transfer isn't going to their heirs, but to insurance companies and healthcare facilities. It seems, again, like this should be a bipartisan issue.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, certainly some people say that. I mean, as a reporter, we don't, you know, uh, we don't propose particular solutions. We mm-hmm. just point out, What isn't working? Um, And of course, report on those who do have solutions when they do have them. But um, I I think that it's, you know, very clear that, you know, that this isn't this system does not work for the majority of Americans.
0: We do have a caller, uh, Leah from Albuquerque, who wanted to mention some resources and options for people in the situation. Good morning, Leah.
4: Hi, Megan. Thank you for giving me a chance to speak. Sure. What did you want to say? Yes, I just wanted to say um, I'm a public health professional, and I became very aware of this issue of how to provide quality care for elders and for people suffering chronic diseases when my mother, aging mother, and my sister <clears throat> both needed this kind of support. And I became involved with an organization here um, called Encuentro, New Mexico. Oh yeah, and. Together with the executive director at the time at encuentro we began developing a program that was responsive to the people that were already going to encuentro which are adult Latinos who immigrant Latinos who are looking for um, educational opportunities and workforce development opportunities and we created a home health aid training program which has been hugely popular we've I think we're in our 16th uh, cohort of trainees, Um, we have a waiting list of 100 and more people every semester that went, immigrants that went to take the class, it's in Spanish, the 15-week class, it's classroom and lab-based, and after people graduate from our program, they have continuing support through paid internships, which are available for older adults that don't, qualify for Medicaid but also can't pay out of pocket. We raise the funds to pay the interns to, that have been trained through our course um, to do this work for three months. We also have a matching registry that's called Ncasa Care, which is for people that do have means to pay out of pocket and want to have uh, hire someone independently. We help them connect with our, train, uh, people, our graduates and um, they can interview, and select a person that is a good fit for their family. We've had really incredible stories from people about the matching uh, that they've been able to do and that, what it's meant to their family. We also have a new cooperative that just started. A group of women who formed, of our graduates, who formed uh, a business and are offering um, services called Albuquerque Assisted Care and Comunidad. So um, we're really trying to provide solutions to this very urgent issue in in Albuquerque. We collaborate with Adrian's um, organization, of course, also with uh, West Health Leadership High. We have national um, collaborators as well, National Domestic Workers Alliance, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and and many other funders That's- that are supporting this work.
0: That's fantastic, Leah. I had known about this. Um, I put a story on the web post for the show at KUNM.org about Encuentro, but I didn't know how much you'd grown. I'll put more information there. Thank you so much for calling in and telling us about that.
4: Thank you. This is an important topic. I appreciate that you have it on this morning.
0: Um, My next guests are from the state of New Mexico, from agencies um, we've been talking about. um, I'm sorry, I should say these issues as you might guess, are not just concentrated in one state agency. (laughs) So I have uh, Christopher Burmeister. He's the director of the Division of Health Improvement, which is part of New Mexico Department of Health. And Jennifer Scott is the ombud for the aging and long-term services department. Jennifer, I saw you reacting throughout the show. Um, You were very familiar with all these issues. What does your office do that could be helpful to people navigating this maze of long-term care?
5: Thank you, Megan, for having me. Um, I, I would just like to say first um, to Kevin that um, I'm so sorry to hear about uh, the treatment of your mother and brother. And um, all too often we see a lot of these these types of situations. Um, and it it just breaks my heart. And that's how you saw me reacting. I just, you know, I can't believe what I hear often. Um, and unfortunately, that is the reality of this. Um, and just hearing those stories, that's exactly why the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program does the work it does. Um, our program advocates for the health, safety, welfare, and rights of long-term care residents, those in uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And we make um, regular visits to uh, all the facilities in the state. Um, and we also, um, we do routine visits and then also we do um, we go to facilities when complaints um, have been submitted to us, um, or for, in, in other ways, um, we investigate those complaints. Um, we try to assist residents in voicing whatever complaints they have. Um, if they are unable to, um, you know, often there's a fear of ret- retaliation, too. So we we step in there to try to help them voice those complaints, get issues addressed, um, work with family members, if they are experiencing issues with a particular facility. Um, and we try to, um, really, we encourage residents to, to stand up for themselves as, as, as much as they can, you know, and, um, and get, get things, you know, just make, just to help them have better care, better quality of life. Um, And so what what we often see um, and what we are seeing, I would just like to to say that we see a lot of quality of care concerns and chronic issues, particularly with these um, for-profit corporations, the private equity companies that you're talking about, um, making cuts instead of putting the profits back into the care. Um, And putting the profits over the care is so detrimental to the residents. Um, We've seen cuts in... With staffing, as everybody was talking about, with food quality of food, um, the amount of food that's served, we've seen it with activities. Um, so, and and we also see um, when the Department of Health, when their surveyors go out, um, a lot of these facilities are cited or tagged for um, for a lot of these issues, and they just continue to do them. It's just like there's nothing there's nothing actually correcting the issues. Um, It's like they just keep happening over and over again and they're tagged and they continue on with these practices. And what I'm really concerned with is um, how we address the corporate policies and practices that are detrimental to resident care because often it feels like we're going in and helping particular residents with issues, but there are these big systemic issues that we're all talking about that really need to be, addressed we need better models on um, these these corporate models where um investors want to see a return on their investment and and we're not seeing this these profits that they're making going back into the care and helping the residents um i, I really want to see how we can address that and Mm-hmm. Um, also, I have I
0: wanted to just I have an okay. email from a listener. Jennifer is an attorney. She handles cases involving nursing homes and assisted living mm-hmm. facilities. She says the relationship between sufficient staffing and good care is very strong. And the federal government is trying to improve nursing home okay. care. By setting minimum staffing ratios for nursing homes that receive Medicare and Medicaid funds, the ratio they're proposing, three hours of care per patient day, is higher than New Mexico's minimum, which is two and a half hours per care, of care per patient day. Of course, nursing home companies say this is too onerous, while patient advocates worry that it's not doing enough. Um, I wanted to ping off uh, Jennifer um, to Chris Burmeister. Uh Chris, you are in a similar arena, but you have a little bit more regulatory teeth, right, in yep. your division when there are things going wrong. Tell me a little bit about that.
6: Yeah. I, I And how people wanted,
0: can access it.
6: <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to go back to Kevin, and I'm sorry for the losses. It's, it's absolutely devastating. Uh, you lost two fam- family members in long-term care, and that's unacceptable. That's around staff competency. Um We are seeing this, I assure you, what Kevin says is a story that is important to his family and to the residents residing in our nursing homes. We have 68 nursing homes. We have 219 assisted living facilities. In the year 2023, we wrote over 1,100 citations in 68 nursing homes, primarily around staffing. Staffing. This is the issue and staffing competency we the, the federal government has levied over three million dollars in fines in nursing homes in new mexico over the last two years um, our complaints line continues daily to receive complaints at every level of care and every kind of care issue that you can imagine uh, we are responding to these we are holding the facilities accountable for them we are citing them. We are finding them. And it continues around the nation. And it is unacceptable, the delivery of care. Every resident, we talked about staffing. You know, we 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 look at staffing ratios. The, the truth of it is, is every resident care should be resident focused. It's not a staffing ratio. It's how many staff it takes to take care of that individual to meet their needs specifically. And that's the most important part of what we're talking about, whatever that is. Secretary Allen and I were in an assisted living facility on Tuesday. We're walking, touring, and visiting with residents. This is a corporation that operates out of California. We brought the senior leaders in from California to tour the facility with us because of their lack of non-compliance and hold them accountable for the care at this assisted living facility. We are going to continue to drive this message, but there also needs to be work done up front, funding, Resources. The accounting portion is absolutely paramount, and we are holding these facilities accountable for this unacceptable care.
0: Chris, I know. But there also
6: needs to be a change in focus on how we take care of our elders.
0: I totally agree with that. Chris, your facility goes in. Do you, you survey these facilities by complaint, but you also make visits unannounced every year to these Correct. facilities, and people can report problems on your hotline. And I have a link to that on our website at kunm.org. You're also you have ratings so people can go to your site if they're trying to find a place and look at these.
6: Absolutely. You know, there's some things when you're looking at any kind of assisted living or long term care facility. When you walk in the door, they regulatorily have to have three years worth of survey findings. And you should be able to review that in the lobby. You should be able to look at their citations and ask what's going on. You should be able to use the federal website Nursing Compare to look at what their star, star rating is star rating is a composite of staffing any kind of regulatory violations and that should give you a clue of kind of what's going on uh, there's a checklist that you can go in and ask questions of the administration before you even think about putting a family member in that facility that helps guide you to the questions that you might not have thought of to ask this facility and how they take care of it one of the most unique things is is everybody's individual so you you need to make sure that they create care around your individual family member and meet their needs. And sometimes that can be behavioral health. That can be special needs on um, transferring how many people it takes to take care of that individual. And it's important that they meet that need.
0: I have put, um, I'll put these resources online. If we don't have them, Uh, we have, we're just about at the end of the show, but Jennifer and Chris, um, can people also reach out to your departments to get help with um, me- with uh, financial help? That's true. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm.
5: yes Megan, um, I just wanted to point out that a lot of people may not be aware that the Aging and Long-Term Services Department has a lot of different divisions and services that can help people. Um, we have our Aging and Disability Resource Center that can help with Medicaid and Medicare, um, different types of benefits counseling, long-term options counseling. Um, we also have, um, of course, our, we have a care transition program that helps assist people um, in setting up home care services, like if they are moving away, transitioning from a okay. facility, um, um, and then um,
0: I will and put course- all those links online, Jennifer. I'm so sorry. I apologize, we've run out of time. There's so much to talk about. Thank you to all our guests today. Thanks to our engineer, Maria Spencer. Daniel Montano took your calls. Kaveh Mova had produced the show. Follow us on Facebook at KUNM Radio and Instagram at KUNM News. And you can find this audio at KUNM or wherever you get your podcast. And next week, we'll be talking about the idea of a universal basic income. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk New Mexico.